Come on. Welcome to Money Savage, a savage approach to personal finance. This is George Grombacher, and the time is right. Welcome to today's guest, the strong and powerful Libby Gill. Libby, are you ready to do this? I am ready, George. Excellent. Let's do this. After heading communications at media giants Universal, Sony, and Turner Broadcasting, Libby left the corporate world to start Libby Gill and Company. She is an executive coach, leadership expert, speaker, and best-selling author. Her new book, The Hope Driven Leader, is available now. I'm excited to have you on. Libby, tell us a little bit about your personal life, some more about your work, and why you do what you do. Well, funny when you say personal life, you know, that overlaps so much with work life. But on the personal side, I, uh, I'm a, a working mom of two kids. Both are about to graduate, one from undergrad, one from um, graduate school in just a matter of weeks. So I'm psyched about that. Congratulations. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. It's, it's quite a feat turning out young adults. Um, so I, I have learned a lot about the millennial brain from my own kids. And, um, and I live in Southern California. I worked for many years in television and really loved that, but I got to the point where I'd kind of done it. And what I really liked the most about it, besides the sort of strategic dealing with the media and the, the balance of the creative business, was turning my team of young people into superstar executives. And they are all over the media business today, I'm, I'm happy to say. And we frequently, a lot of them followed me from studio to studio because I, I started started at Sony and then went to uh, Turner Broadcasting and then to Universal and took a good chunk of them with me from studio to studio. And still today, many years later, we have our quarterly staff meetings, which is code for margaritas. <laughs> um, and we love getting together. And, and at this stage, now I've been coaching for 16 years. I, I kind of can't even remember where I knew people from. It all sort of overlaps. And it's it's really fun when you can can build that group of, of people and stay in touch over the years. Yeah. So, uh, so that's kind of the personal side. I think that that's evidence that that you're treating people the right way and doing things the right way when uh, when 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 people follow you like that. So congratulations for that as well. Thank you. People are always surprised. I often get asked when I'm speaking, you know, what what was my proudest moment in the corporate world? And interestingly, it's a the story is in this this recent book, and it's about uh, rallying around somebody who was was very ill, and how my team just had her back. And we saved her job. We kept her confidence, and and that that to me is what the workplace is all about. Yeah, in an ideal world, right? Yeah, in an ideal world, yes. So we were talking a little bit before we got started about how we're both passionate for, and, and I, I, I guess we maybe more empathize with the reality that so few Americans really enjoy their work. And we were, I was hoping to get into that with you as to why you think that is and, and what, what needs to be done to, to change that. Yeah, it's pretty sad. And the Gallup research says that 67.5, and I always think that 0.5 gives that ultimate ring of truth, 0.5% of people are either disengaged or active 
actively unengaged in their work, to actually doing some harm to the workplace, either by attitude or mistakes or whatever. And and when I first saw those numbers, I thought, gee, that seems really high. But I'll often throw that out to a group and, and there was, you know, whether they believe that number or not, and they'll say, it may be a little too low. So that's a real shocker. And I think a lot of it is, is it's a few different things. It's a really complex issue, but, but a lot of it is that individuals don't always connect their day-to-day job to the bigger purpose or mission of the organization. And, and that's a fault in leadership. I think they really have to let people know what they do and, and how it aligns with the corporate or the business mission and why it's so critical. Every job, you wouldn't be there if you didn't have a critical piece of the whole. But people don't always see it. They get locked into feeling kind of, you know, I'm a cog in the wheel or something like that, and they, they don't see the contribution. So once they feel that they're really part of something that matters and that they've got a team that's, that's in it with them, it changes everything. And, uh, and I think that's a, a, something leaders have to be more mindful of. Yeah, I, I think that that's 100% correct. Um, and it doesn't matter what, what, what it is that you're doing. If you're, if you're digging a ditch or if you are working on programming the most sophisticated computer system in the world, you linking whatever that role is or that, that job is to the greater purpose of the organization is, is, is really key to, I think, helping people feel like they're, they're doing something worthwhile. So. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. It, it has nothing to do with the level, the the salary, the the office, any of that. It's it's having a real commitment and a sense of of purpose. I was just in Houston last week, and you know, greeted by a bellman who just couldn't have been happier about his job and saying hello and making sure I was set up and happy. And I thought, you know, that's somebody who really enjoys his job, and everybody who comes in contact with that person is going to have a better day because of because of his sheer attitude. Right. And and those things really matter. One thing I always really strive to, to avoid doing when I'm doing a podcast is to, I, I, I never want to be trite. I, I never want to just say throwaway terms. But what we're talking about, I think people could, could construe that as, oh yeah, whatever, you know, I need to link to the purpose. But it's just that easy. It really is changing your perspective on the work that you're doing. And if you can do that and make that choice, then I think that you will be a happier, more fulfilled person. Yeah, it just stands to reason. And also that the level of engagement and uh, inspiration you feel, no matter what the job is, not 100% of the time. We've all got stuff we just have to do. It's just part of the job, not that we love to do. But when you come in with that spirit of engagement and excitement and enthusiasm, it spreads through an organization just like the reverse. That negative, nasty person that we've all experienced at one time or another can ruin your day or, or really sour a team on a, on a task at hand. So we really have to step back and see, you know, what are we bringing? And I, I had somebody who said to me, I was, I was meeting with somebody uh, for some one-on-one coaching and she said, you know, it used to be you, you had to justify the value you brought to the organization. And now I see people, people really want to see how they are valued. So there's there's really that balance between the two. Yes, you've got to you've got to justify your value. You've got to make sure people understand your contributions. But it goes the other way too. We want to know that we are valued within the business or the team. That's an interesting shift, right there, isn't it? 
Yeah. Yeah. And it's and I see, you know, people love to, to knock the millennials of, oh, they're so entitled. They want your job, all that kind of stuff, which I think, first of all, is a problem because we're sort of painting them all with the same brush. Right. And they are not all tech wizards and they're not, you know, they're not all anything. They are different human beings. They grew up in the same time period and many have share a worldview, just like I do with my baby, baby boomer uh, partners. But um I, I see a very purposeful and hope-driven group of young adults coming to the workforce, and, and they're going to own it. By 2020, they're going to be more than half. They'll be 60% of the, of the workforce is going to be that millennial group. Right. So how do we harness that? How do we get that sense of enthusiasm and engagement and, and get on that wavelength? Because they'll dominate pretty soon. Right. So there's this great quote, I think it's attributed to Moses, which is a pretty good source. It says, where there's no vision, the people perish. Yeah. And the same can probably be true or be said for hope. And that's 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 the, the, the subject of your new book and talking about how hope is, in fact, a strategy. So I'd like to hear about that, if you don't mind. Oh, absolutely. I, I, I Hope has always been to me, you know, we've all got our thing. Is it our mission, our vision, our purpose, whatever we think internally? And to me, it was always hope that felt like the jet fuel for this journey of work, life, overcoming problems, all of those things. It's what made my, my feet hit the floor in the morning, no matter what I was experiencing. And I, and I always called that, I always attributed that to a sense of hopefulness. And I grew up in a pretty challenging, dysfunctional, and I mean, clinically dysfunctional family. So I really had to sort of find that within at a young age. And I wrote a book about overcoming, you know, baggage of the past. And I called it Traveling Hopefully after a Robert Louis Stevenson quote, which is to travel hopefully is a better thing than to arrive. So that's always been top of mind for me is that one thing that you can't lose. I mean, we've seen people lose health and money, as you talk about, and, and, and still be able to live a fulfilling life that contributes to others. But to me, hope is the one thing that cannot be absent or nothing else counts. And so as I dug further into that, especially when I changed careers and became an executive coach, I really started doing the, the research and the homework. And I'm, I'm a bit of a neuroscience geek, although I'm, I'm not a scientist by any means, but I love to back things up with data, probably because I'm more of a creative person than I am a, a, a business or numbers person. And I found the study of hope theory, which is the science of hope that comes out of medicine and positive psychology. And the thing that is most relevant, particularly to the, the, all, the people that follow you who are really concerned about money and financial growth, is that it's about establishing a future-focused vision, but taking into account that, there, that setbacks and obstacles and challenges are part of that process. And the higher you set the bar, the bigger the challenges are going to be and just accepting that but keeping that future focus vision top of mind so it gets you past fears and blocks and bad days because you know what you're striving for is attainable and meaningful and that's kind of the essence of hope theory got it i think it's it makes all the sense in the world when you hear that that's actually a scientifically studied thing although i mm -hmm. don't know that i ever have heard of that uh, but I imagine that there's so much evidence from from a medicine standpoint, almost like the placebo effect. If you think something's going to work, it's it's probably going to. 
You hit it, George. That's exactly where it came from. On the on the medical side, really interesting guy that wrote a book called The Anatomy of Hope, a Harvard-trained oncologist. And he cites a study that was done at Baylor on knee surgery, arthroscopic knee surgery, one of the most common surgeries in this in this country. And a group at Baylor was split into three sort of subgroups, and two got actual surgeries, two different methods and one was the placebo group they went through the same process with the you know the pre the the operation the post everything as though it were an actual surgery painstakingly recreated and at the end of it all when they checked the long-term results all three groups were about the same. And the the gist of this study was not that this was some kind of woo-woo mysticism, but in fact that when you have the belief that change is possible and you have an expectation that your actions, in this case, going through the rehab and the physical therapy and all that, make the difference, people take action on their own behalf and it really it, it actually releases brain chemicals endorphins and kephalins to boost the immune the immune system and also to help suppress pain so it, there's a chemical release that comes with that process it's fascinating to learn about that that is fascinating and the imperative need for the right beliefs and the right expectations that makes sense to me yeah, you know, think about it. If you're there, you know, they've got you draped, you're in your surgical game, all that stuff, and there's the doctor in the white uh, lab coat who says, hey, guess what? You're in the placebo group, so good luck. <laughs> uh, th that's the end of it for you. But if they're going through the actual surgery and you do that rigorous rehabilitation, it's going to turn out okay. Maybe that means fewer people should get the surgery. I don't know about that part. I'm not a medical doctor. But it certainly gives us an indication that that your mind, your brain is, is very powerful in how you condition the, the physiological part of your, of your being. And there's it. a huge effect. Mm -hmm. So let's, let's just connect the dots. I'm somebody waking up on a Monday morning, begrudgingly hitting my alarm clock, and then going out the door to a, a job that I don't necessarily love. How do I reprogram myself? Well, first of all, look at what brought you to the job in the first place. Was there something about it that, that you did love or that you hoped to get out of it? And if there was, reconnect with that sense of purpose. Reconnect what it was. Is it the, the creative energy of the team and yet you've isolated yourself? Is it that you felt like the, the company had a great sort of value system, they were doing something good for the world, but you feel like you no longer are part of that? Figure that out. Uh, it could be that you're in the wrong place at the wrong time and it's time to consider moving on, but also a sense of challenge yourself. Find something new. Um, learn something. Ask for new assignments. Stretch yourself. Give yourself, a, if you're in a company that, that does some coaching or training or skills-based uh, learning, go after that. And another thing about the workplace is that there's what I now uh, I call function fluidity. Nobody, even if you stay at the co same company, you're not going to be in the same job for 20 or 30 years. The people who set the gold standard are going to be the ones who are the lifelong learners, who are going to take on new tasks, take on new training, try new things, 
risk failing and moving from place to place throughout the organization. So you've got to prime yourself for that. And knowing you've got a lot to learn and you've got a lot to take advantage of uh, can get you reignited and re-excited again. Because we, you know, we're human beings. We tend to slip into that comfort mode, which again goes back to brain science. It's we we go through the path of least resistance because it's our primitive brain saying, hey, go down the safe route, the one you've traveled many times. If you veer off to this other route that you've never taken, danger. And if we let the amygdala, that fear center of our brain take over, we are less likely to try something new. And it, then it becomes habitual. And we just get stuck in those ruts because that's how we're wired to stay alive. So you've got to acknowledge that, understand that that little you know, palpitation, that adrenaline and your sweaty palms is all about facing fears. But that's from the primitive brain days when you had to get out of the line of uh, you know, lightning or predators or your foes (laughs) and don't give into it try something new shake up your routine and that can get you re-enthused about what you're doing every day definitely i love it well libby savage nation is ready for your difference making tip what do you have for Ah. them Well, here's what I found in doing research for the Hope Driven Leader. I found something that was fascinating because so many of us have heard you can form a habit in 21 days. Have you ever heard that, George? I have. Yeah, I think everybody has. And here's where it came from. I tracked this down to see if that was true. And it came from a book that was written in the 60s, which I remember vividly because I snuck it home. My dad was a psychiatrist, scientist, not a fan of self-help, which he considered uh, quackery. So this book called Psycho-Cybernetics, I kept under my bed and snuck it out at night to read it because I was all about how do I get better every day. And it was written by a plastic surgeon who noticed that when he he performed cosmetic surgery on his patients, it took most of them about 21 days to be a, a, become accustomed to their new nose or chin or implant or whatever it was. And over the years, like kind of like a game of telephone, it got misinterpreted and mistranslated into, hey, start a diet, start a fitness plan, start a, a money-saving track. In 21 days, you'll, you'll have it. It'll be a habit. And it's just not true, which is why a lot of people give up on their goals because their expectations are wrong. <laughs> But what you really need to do, there are four simple steps, and I outline these in the book, but basically you need to pick the right action, the right habit that you want to form, and then tie it to a trigger. So if you say, I want to eat fruit for breakfast, you know, have it sliced up in the fridge, and when you go down for your morning cup of coffee, you pull that out of the refrigerator every morning at 6.30, or you go out for your walk or your run. Tie it to a trigger so that you put it in context. Next, step two is repetition. Just repeat it over time. It can take as much as three months for it to feel natural. Then you begin to expand it, the expansion phase where you increase the intensity, the time, the strength of the habit you're forming, whether it's running or saving money. You just intensify that habit. And then step four is when you reach what the scientists call automaticity. It just becomes natural. You don't even think about it. It's like clicking your seatbelt when you get in the car. And once you recognize what it means, how long it takes, and what the simple steps are, it is so much easier. And those little steps can add up to really big results. Well, that is great stuff. That definitely gets a come on. Come on. So thank you so much for that. And automaticity is, a, is, is, is an awesome word right there. I love it. It is a good word, isn't it? 
Well, Libby, thank you so much for coming on. Where can Savage Nation learn more about you, and where can they pick up a copy of your new book? Uh, you can find me at LibbyGill.com, and, and anybody is welcome to download the first chapter and check it out or buy the book right there on the homepage or Amazon or anywhere you buy books. Excellent. Well, Savage Nation, if you enjoyed this as much as I did, show Libby your appreciation and share today's show with a friend who also appreciates good ideas. Go to LibbyGill.com and check out her book um, and pick it up from wherever books are sold. So thank you again, Libby. Thank you. My pleasure. And until next time, keep fighting the good fight because we're all in this together. What's up, Savage Nation? Please support the show by subscribing, leave us a review, and definitely feel free to share us with somebody you think would like it. Come on.